Luke 1, 1 through 4. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. This is the word of the Lord. Awesome. Thank you, Ben. Well, again, it's good to be with you all. Uh, I'd love to pray for our time as we continue on, as we hear from God through his word. So let's take a moment to pray. Father in heaven, we do believe that you are present. And Lord, while we may struggle at times, and while some of us may be at a place where we cannot believe, where we refuse to believe, Lord, we, we long to be a people collectively who are aware of the fact that you are present. And so Lord, in our, in our faith, in our doubt, would you meet us? Would you answer our questions? Would you draw us to yourself? And may we see Jesus the one who has come to make us new, to make us whole, to draw us back into right relationship with you, Lord. May we see him clearly. So Lord, as we turn to your word, may we hear from you. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. May you be honored in this time. May we be edified and may you make us more and more like Jesus in all that we think, say, and do, both in this time and in the places and spaces you send us to from here. We pray this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. I do. I believe in Jesus. I believe that a virgin gave birth to a child. I believe that the eternal, infinite God entered into our world and became a human. I believe that a Palestinian preacher walked on water and healed blind people, that he forgave sins, he befriended prostitutes, and that he was crucified and he rose again from the dead. I believe in Jesus. And, and even as I say that, even in church, I feel the, the immensity of the implausibility of that statement. And even, even some of us who would say yes and amen and agree, there's probably still a level of reluctancy or hesitancy even in saying, yes, I believe. There are some, though, in our day, even in saying that, I, like I said, I feel the implausibility of that statement. I feel even the offensive nature that's associated with it. Because there's some in our day who would hear me make those claims and say, well, you're, you're just delusional at best, but there's some who would say that I'm actually diabolical at worst for what I believe and the beliefs attached to the Christian faith. The question for all of us, though, is what do we believe about Jesus? What do we do with Jesus of Nazareth? Even those of us, like I said, who identify as followers of Jesus still probably have these questions. What do we believe about him? And can we have any level of confidence or certainty, as Luke says to Theophilus, about who Jesus is, what he claimed to do, and how we are to now live our lives in light of that truth? What do we believe about Jesus? And these are not just like intriguing questions I'm asking to kind of draw you in and build tension and suspension. These are questions I'm asking for myself, and I invite you to ask with me as we journey and wrestle together, who is Jesus? Can we have any confidence about who he is and what he has done? And and that's why I'm, I'm very excited as we enter in this morning, beginning our new sermon series that we're calling Rediscovering Jesus. 
Uh, We're going to be marching through the Gospel of Luke. If you were with us during Advent, we kind of introduced you to the Gospel of Luke in the first songs of Christmas. But this year, a large part of this year, we're going to be in the Gospel of Luke asking the question, who is Jesus and why does he matter and how should we conduct our lives if, if in any different way if what he says is true? And this morning, we're going to be focusing in on what's referred to as the prologue, which some have argued is one of the most beautifully crafted sentences in the first century. The author of this gospel, Luke, introduces us to the purpose of his writing. He's trying to show us who the real Jesus is. And and this morning, as we meet together in our text in Luke 1, 1 through 4, I want to suggest something to all of us, regardless of where you are in the faith spectrum or your journey of faith, I want to suggest this to us all. That if you're going to reject Jesus, then do it the right way. If you're going to reject Jesus, do it the right way. And I'll explain what I mean by this, because my fear as a pastor is not just that people would reject Jesus, it's that they would reject Jesus for the wrong reasons. That they would walk away from a Jesus that is not the true Jesus of the Gospels, but is a caricature of, of what they have believed about him, gathered from sound bites and various perspectives of people in our, cult- our culture. Have we come to reject the true Jesus? Or conversely, is it possible that those of us who do follow Jesus have come to believe in this kind of adapted, distorted, and sanitized version of Jesus that is really nothing like the Jesus of the Gospels? A Jesus that agrees with everything that you agree with, a Jesus that objects to everything that you object to, and just loves every lifestyle decision you've ever made. Is it possible that we have come to believe or reject the wrong Jesus? And I think this is why the the gospel writer Luke is writing his gospel in particular. He's wanting to introduce us and his, uh, his, his audience, Theophilus, to the real Jesus, And as you notice, Luke is writing his gospel to a real person, Theophilus. It's not a metaphor for a group of people. Theophilus was a person that Luke had a relationship with to some degree and was wanting to convince him of the the veracity of the claims of Jesus. And so with that in mind, understanding what Luke is trying to do in revealing the real Jesus to this real man, Theophilus, I want us to enter into our text, but before we do, I want to give us some background to who Luke is and his gospel. If we're going to be here for a while, let's get acquainted with this guy as we're going to spend some time this year in Luke. Now, Luke is the author of this gospel that bears his name, but he is also the author of the book of Acts. In fact, Luke and Acts were meant to be read as one volume. If you read the beginning of the book of, of Acts, you see Theophilus' name reappear again. And that's because Luke wrote Luke and Acts together as a whole volume set. And he was doing so to convince Theophilus of what he has come to hear about this man named Jesus. Now Luke himself, he's introduced to us, we know him as kind of a a renaissance man of kinds. He's, He's a physician, he's also a great historian, and some argue that he was probably a talented or skilled musician, given the fact that he emphasizes so many songs in his gospel in comparison to the other gospel writers. We also know Luke accompanied the, the Apostle Paul in his missionary journeys, uh, recorded in the book of Acts, and so we know Luke to be a follower of Jesus. He was most likely a Gentile, uh, but we also know him to be a person who was devoted to sharing the good news of Jesus in joining Paul on his missionary journeys. But in addition to being an evangelist, Paul, uh, Luke was also an apologist. 
meaning that he was devoted to convincing people of the truth, the veracity, the trustworthiness of Jesus and what he claimed to do and who he claimed to be. And this is made clear to us when we read the prologue, the opening verses of Luke's gospel. Luke is writing his gospel to persuade Theophilus, whose name means friend of God or lover of God, that he has come to hear things about Jesus, and Luke is wanting to convince him that there is certainty. He can have a level of confidence in what he has been taught. Luke is seeking to show the real Jesus to this real person. And so what I want us to do as we kind of continue on this morning, I want us, and even really throughout the Gospel of Luke, I want us to to place ourselves in the sandals, if you will, of Theophilus. I want us to kind of hear these words as if Luke is writing to us to convince us of the historical trustworthy nature of Jesus and who he claimed to be. And as we do that, I want us to imagine Luke asking kind of three questions. He's asking these questions in a sense of Theophilus. And I want us to hear these questions being asked of us as well. And the first is this. Do you have your story straight about Jesus? Do you have your story straight about Jesus? Whether you believe in him or not, all of us have to have an opinion of this man. You can't live in the Western world or the world in general and and be neutral or ambivalent towards Jesus. He is, too in, he is too significant of a character to have no opinion of him. I mean, just culturally speaking, if you want to be considered a thoughtful person who inhabits this world, you have to have an opinion of Jesus. It may be that he is the son of God, or it may be that you just lump him in with the characters of Zeus and Mother Goose. He's just kind of a fairy tale mythology, nothing of significance. Regardless, you can't be neutral about Jesus. You must have an opinion of him. Now, we just came out of the season of Christmas where we center our attention on the story of his birth, a story that is riddled with implausibility. I mean, from the reference of angels to the virgin birth, the gospels are received by so many throughout history and in our day today as nothing more than just mythology and religious folklore. It's too implausible to believe. It's too hard of a pill to swallow. And perhaps that describes you, and, and, and if, that's, if that's true, that's okay. I'm glad you're here and you have these questions. But what my question to you is, have you got your story straight about Jesus? Or have you come to believe kind of these sound bites that, oh, the gospels are just fairy tales, it's nothing but mythology, and you've written off Jesus, and perhaps you have walked away from a Jesus that isn't the true Jesus? Because here's what I'll say, there is a world of difference between mythology, as we, as we know it classically, and what the Gospels are. Whatever the Gospels are in their literary genre, they are not like mythology. For starters, the, the, the difference is in the, the, the timing of the events and when they were recorded. There was not enough time that elapsed between the events that are recorded in the Gospels and when they were written to quantify or to justify or, or to constitute, rather, uh, mythology and legend. Almost all biblical scholars agree that the the gospel writers, and Luke in particular, was written sometime between 25 to 45 years after Jesus' resurrection. Even even non-Christian biblical scholars agree to that. And just frankly speaking, that's not enough time for something like legend to develop. You see, legend forms over time where, where the people who have told the story have been long since dead. Their grandchildren have been long since dead. This is not enough time for legend to take place, and here's why. The reason being is that there are people still alive when Luke recorded his gospel 
who were most likely alive during the time of Jesus when these events uh, took place that he's recording. And so for him to say, I'm, I'm writing this based on eyewitness testimony of which there are people still alive today, Luke is basically saying, I've done my research. You can go ask these people if you doubt me. And so, so these people are most likely alive during this time, and they can either confirm and maybe more importantly, deny what Luke is writing about. Let, let me illustrate it this way. Do you remember when Steve DeBerg, quarterback of the Chiefs, won the Super Bowl, led us to the Super Bowl in 1990? Do you guys remember that? It was incredible. Now, if some of you weren't alive in 1990, so, so you might have to ask somebody, but it was incredible. If, if you were alive in 1990, it was a miracle, right? Yeah, 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 there's, there's laughter. Now, here's the thing. Obviously, before you go to Wikipedia and prove me wrong, I know that the Chiefs did not win the Super Bowl in 1990. They will win it in 2020. Amen? Oh, my goodness. That was, that was lovely. Hey, but, but here's the thing. Here's the thing. That claim that the, the Chiefs won the Super Bowl in 1990 under Steve DeBerg is ridiculous. Why? Because you all were there. Like, no, it didn't happen. I was alive. And I'm like still depressed over the fact that we haven't been to the Super Bowl. You know, like we all can attest to the fact 30 years ago, 30 years ago, we can say that that didn't happen. The same way for Luke to claim that his recordings in the gospel are based on eyewitnesses who are most likely alive 30 years after Jesus' resurrection, they can attest, they can confirm or deny what was stated. They would have refuted it if it was false, or they would have written it off and dismissed it if it was insignificant. But we actually don't see recordings of any eyewitnesses refuting what Luke is saying. On the contrary, we actually have multiple non-biblical references to Jesus, to his resurrection, and to the crucifixion. It doesn't mean that, that, that it's true, but we have non-biblical sources re referencing him. In fact, one of the most substantive is Tacitus. He was an ancient historian who wrote about the origin of where Christians received their name. And here's what he says. He says, their name came from Christ, and I'm quoting here, who had been executed by sentence of the procurator Pontius Pilate in the reign of Tiberius. All of those are names that Luke references in his gospel. Now, this doesn't prove that Jesus is the Son of God and he atones for our sins. But what I am saying is that there is good reason to believe in the historical claims of Jesus. That what Luke is recording for us, whatever it is, it doesn't read like legend or mythology. In fact, C.S. Lewis, uh, he attests to this in his own studies of the Gospels. And remember, bear in mind, C.S. Lewis, before he was known as a great apologist and Christian author, he was a Cambridge-trained Oxford professor in historical literature. And so he knows something about mythology and legend uh, literature. And he says this, as a literary historian, I'm perfectly convinced that whatever else the Gospels are, they're not legends. I have read a great deal of legend, and I'm quite clear that they are not the same sort of thing. They're not artistic enough to be legends, and from an imaginative point of view, they're clumsy. They don't work up to things properly. Most of the life of Jesus, I love this, most of the life of Jesus is totally unknown to us, as is the life of anyone else who lived at that time. And no people building up a legend would allow that to be so. No legend would live if you have, like, oh, man, do you know about this legendary tale about this boy who was a carpenter? That's all we know. Like, that doesn't last into legend. And so, again, even if after all of that, it's not enough time for legend and mythology to take place. It doesn't read like mythology and legend. 
But on top of that, just, just prima facie, face value reading of what Luke is doing, just listen to how he records his gospel. It, it reads more like historical investigative journalism than mythology. Look again at, at Luke's prologue in verses 3 and 4. It seemed good to me, also having followed all these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So whatever it is that Luke is giving an account of, man, it, does not, it does not read like mythology or legend. Now, you can, you can claim that the, the, the eyewitness testimonies are fabricated. That, that's a different conversation. But, but to dismiss the gospel writers, and Luke in particular, as nothing more than just a legendary tale, that's not giving a fair reading of what he's doing here. Just listen to that language again, the phrase, he followed all things closely. I want to give you an an orderly account that you may have certainty. And that phrase, followed all things closely, some of your translations, it might say, I have investigated, I have carefully investigated everything. And that word investigated is commonly used in Greco-Roman historical literature. And so the question still remains for all of us, do you have your story straight about Jesus? Or have you come to buy into this kind of soundbite theology of, oh yeah, it's just a bunch of fairy tales? And, that's, and, and if you've come to that conclusion after years of study and, and reflection and contemplation, I get it. I can respect that. What I can't respect is someone who just dismisses Jesus because of what someone else has said purely because he's just another fairy tale. We can't, we can't write Jesus off. We must have an opinion about him. If you're going to reject Jesus, like I said, do it the right way. Now, the second question I think Luke is asking of Theophilus and of us is this. Have you separated faith and facts? Have you separated faith and facts? I think this is a very common mindset in our culture today, this this belief that, that, and, and this is true both inside and outside the church, the idea that once you, once you um, enter into the realm of theology and religion and spirituality, you have simultaneously left the realm of science and history and logic and reason. That these two are odd. They are oil and water. They do not mix. And what's so unfortunate about this kind of divide is that these, these need not be opposed to one another. And this is true both outside the church and inside the church. We've kind of believed this idea that faith and facts are kind of separate, that you, you have to kind of suspend reason and critical thinking to follow Jesus. And I think Luke is showing us that that is not the case, because here's the thing. There's this kind of philosophical assumption and belief that just permeates our culture today, and that's the belief that all knowledge, any knowledge, is only obtained through scientific discovery, There can be nothing else known to us apart from scientific discovery, which the ironic thing about that is that that claim cannot be observed and concluded through scientific discovery. Now, hear me. Don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that science is bad and we should just disregard it. What I am saying is that there's a leap. It's one thing to say, I want to learn and observe the world through scientific discovery. That's one thing. But to say that all knowledge is obtained through scientific discovery and nothing else can be known apart from that, you have now made a philosophical statement. You have made a leap, which is why many refer to this way of thinking. It looks like scientific discovery, but it's been referred to what some philosophers refer to as scientism. 
It is now a philosophical assertion about how we know and obtain knowledge. In fact, J.P. Moreland, he's a philosopher and theologian, uh, he addresses this in his book entitled Scientism and Secularism. So if this is kind of scratching an itch for you, that's a great book I'd commend to you. But he says this, he makes this observation. Scientism is a philosophical assertion that claims that philosophical assertions are neither true or can be known. Only scientific assertions can be true or known, which is basically a self-defeating statement. It's kind of like my girls and I, we were watching the Star Wars movies over Christmas break, and we were watching The Revenge of the Sith, and there's this scene where Anakin Skywalker, who's Darth Vader, sorry if I ruined that for anybody, uh, but anyway, but Anakin Skywalker is talking to Obi-Wan Kenobi, and he says, if you're not with me, you're against me. And then Obi-Wan says, only a Sith deals in absolutes. Isn't, isn't that an absolute statement that you just made? That only say, it's, like, it's a self-defeating statement in the same way. To say that all knowledge can only be obtained through scientific discovery is itself not something that can be known through scientific discovery. I say this because I believe Luke is trying to show us there shouldn't be a wedge between history, science, and logic, and religion, theology, spiritual understanding. Scientism is a self-defeating idea of thinking. But on top of that, it creates an unnecessary enemy between faith and science. One need not suspend their reason and their desire to observe the world scientifically in order to follow Jesus. And I think Luke affirms this in his prologue. Look look with me again at verses 1 and 2. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, he goes on to say, it seemed right for me to give this orderly account. The reference of among us and the eyewitnesses is a way of Luke saying, what I am reporting on happened in real time and space. It's observable. It's refutable. It's what's referred to as falsifiable, meaning that it possesses the qualities of being proven true or false. And so Luke is saying, I've done my research, and if you doubt me, go talk to these people who I have interviewed. Luke is not asking Theophilus to suspend his objective reasoning and his critical thinking skills in order to follow Jesus. It's not this let go and let God. It's not this kind of way of thinking, but rather, Luke is giving Theophilus, and us for that matter, good reason to believe that what he's recording is based on eyewitness testimony. It's based on historical research and logical argumentation. Thabiti Aniaboyli, in his commentary on Luke chapter two, or chapter one, uh, he, he talks about the importance of seeing Luke's gospel and the book of Acts in this way. He says this, in the gospels, we have eyewitness evidence admissible in a court of law. He's describing, it's like, it's that kind of evidence In fact, some scholars believe that Luke and Acts are companion volumes written as a legal brief in defense of the Apostle Paul, of his legitimacy as an apostle. So if you're not a follower of Jesus, what I want to ask of you, what I want you to think about is I want you to make sure that you haven't walked away from Jesus because you've bought into this false dichotomy of faith and facts being separated. That if you think in order to follow Jesus, you must suspend your your logical mind and your convictions about the uh, the historical and scientific world, I have good news for you. They both can exist and ought to exist together. 
So don't, don't reject Jesus just because you've been told he's a fairy tale. But simultaneously, don't just follow Jesus just because someone told you to. We have good reason to believe what we declare in the Gospels. Again, if you're going to reject Jesus, do it the right way. Now, the last question that I think Luke is asking of Theophilus and of us, he gets personal. You see, you see like, the, these first two points were kind of what I refer to as kind of cold points. They, they address kind of facts and information. But, but in this third question, we see what Luke is getting at. He's asking Theophilus and us, who do you say that Jesus is? Who do you say that Jesus is? Yes, Luke is giving Theophilus good reason to believe that what he has been taught about Jesus happened in real time and space, but he is no less aiming, aiming at Theophilus' heart, wanting to let him know that he has good reason, he has a level of confidence to believe what he has been taught about Jesus. And he wants him to come to know and trust in this Jesus, which is why Luke ends his prologue with these words. He's writing to Theophilus that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So after you've followed all of these things closely, as Luke has, after you've looked at the evidence, after you've considered it all, the question still remains, who do you say that Jesus is? This is the question Jesus asked of his own disciples, and it is a question that his disciples today must continue to answer. Who do we say that he is? Whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, we must have an opinion in view of this man. He is too significant to dismiss, and we must have an opinion. Let, let me illustrate it this way. When I was a child, I was convinced I hated Brussels sprouts. I, I was convinced of it. Like, like they were just, because Brussels sprouts, they're, they're the quintessential vegetable to hate as a child, right? I mean, even the name Brussels sprout, it's just disgusting. But here's the thing, full disclosure, I never tried a Brussels sprout. My mother never, inter I'm blaming my mother, she never introduced them to me, you know? But in my mind, I was convinced I hated this vile weed, okay? I was convinced of it. But as I was introduced to Brussels sprouts later in life, I came to find that I enjoy these. These are really good. In fact, they're a part of our regular diet. That's right, that's right. You love Brussels sprouts. They're good. And here's the thing. I had spent my whole life walking away, rejecting Brussels sprouts because I had a caricature of them in my mind. I was rejecting and walking away from something that I thought was Brussels sprouts. But in the end, was I, when I was introduced to them, I was like, these are delicious. And I want to know more about them. How do I have a relationship with Brussels sprouts? <laughs> but here's the thing. I think this is how, in some ways, those of us here, or those of us, those whom we love, have treated Jesus. That we have not, it's not that we have investigated him, looked to him, tried to understand him, and said, I want nothing to do with him. Yeah, I've tried Jesus. My fear is that there are so many of us, and those whom we love, who have rejected Jesus in the same way I rejected Brussels sprouts. You have this idea of who Jesus is in your mind, like, yeah, I don't want anything to do with that. Again, if you're going to reject Jesus, do it the right way. But on the flip side, there are some of us here who have had Brussels sprouts, and, and we have eaten them, and we know we don't like them that much. And we've learned ways throughout our years to tolerate them. We know we should eat them, and so we found a way. We, we make them with syrup and bacon and, and walnuts and cranberries as a way to make them more palatable, to make it more enjoyable. 
In the same way, is it possible that those of you who identify as followers of Jesus and said, yes, yes, I, I believe in Jesus, but, but only a certain kind of Jesus. Yes, I, I, will, I will add Jesus to my diet, provided that Jesus doesn't upset my system too much. I, I will add him to my life, provided that he doesn't challenge me, provided that he agrees with everything I agree with, provided that he loves every lifestyle decision I've made. If this is the way we have treated Jesus, well, then we are not following the true Jesus. Have you come to believe in a Jesus that you have altered, that you have adapted, who now conveniently fits into your life, a Jesus that never challenges you, never calls you to anything beyond your comfort zone, agrees with your decisions, hates everything and everyone that you hate, and just in general just wants you to be happy and do what makes you happy. If that's the way we have come to see Jesus, then we have not come to follow Jesus in the right way. So, so here again, the question for all of us still remains, who do you say that Jesus is? If this story is yours, are you willing to investigate Jesus? Or are you willing to continue to bring yourself before him as the king of your life? If you're not a follower of Jesus, are you willing to join us as we seek to rediscover him? Bring your questions, bring your doubts, bring your objections and concerns, add them to ours as we seek to know who Jesus is and what it means to live in light of the fact that there was a man who claimed to be God, who defeated death and forgave us of our sins. If this story is yours, are you willing to lay aside your domesticated Jesus, your hobby Jesus, your Jesus that's just kind of is a facet and a part of your life and surrender to him? and live in light of the fact that he is king, in fact, he is God. All of us have to take a side, so to speak, when it comes to who Jesus is. And what I hope and pray for for all of us is that we would come to side ourselves with the one who came to side with us, amen? That we would come to side with the one who entered into our world to rescue us and to redeem us, to side with the one who entered our world physically, who was witnessed empirically, who lived perfectly, who died sacrificially, and who rose victoriously. Amen? That's that's the Jesus I want to side with. And I'm not asking you to side with him by suspending your reason and critical thinking. Bring your mind, bring your heart, bring your objections, and bring your hopes as we seek to rediscover Jesus together. So friends, who do you say that Jesus is? Let's pray. Father in heaven, I know all too well how easy it is to stand up here and to proclaim and to tell others what it means to believe in Jesus. And Lord, you know my heart. You know that as I believe, I ask you to help my unbelief. So Lord, in this time, would you meet us in in our great faith, in our weak faith, in our absence of faith, and would you draw us to yourself? Lord, help us to see the the truth of who Jesus is. May we see and, and believe that you have come to enter into our world in real time and space to rescue and redeem us. Lord Jesus, would you be the king of our lives? And would we be a people who worship you, who follow you in body, mind, and spirit, not as a hobby or as a facet, but as the king of our lives? Lord Jesus, may we be able to answer that question, who you are, And may it radically change everything about us. 
And Lord, would you draw those who are far from you, draw them near, open their eyes that they may know and see and behold the beauty of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Would you do this for your glory and for our good, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.